This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with best-selling author Johan Hari. Johan joined me to talk about his new book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention. Johan investigates the attention crisis and asks, why have we lost our ability to focus? What are the causes? And more importantly, how do we get it back? And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome back onto the show Johan Hari, who is an internationally best-selling author, and I have had the absolute good pleasure and fortune of meeting him in person twice. And uh, funnily enough, we're now doing our chat over the internet, which is very <laughs> crazy. Um, Johan is uh, the author of many books, including Chasing the Scream, which was our last chat. And it was just recently adapted into a Hollywood feature film, The United States versus Billie Holiday. And we also did get a chance to catch up the first time, although it was actually his last book called Lost Connections, and it was looking at anxiety and depression. So I welcome Johan back onto the program to talk about his new book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention, which is out through Bloomsbury. Hey there, Johan. Oh my God, Amy, I'm so happy to be with you. I feel like last time I saw you was in the before times. And now, you know, I cried the other day when I saw those clips of the Qantas flights landing and, you know, like oh. internationals coming into Australia. I was like, oh my God, I could go to Australia. I was like, <laughs> properly, I was in Las Vegas at the time. And I was like, oh my God, I could just go literally now to Australia. It well, felt please like do. Oh my God, I'm so definitely, I'm coming back in about a year's time. I might squeeze my oh. time back before then. But uh, yeah, so I'm so thrilled to be with you, Amy. It's always a joy to talk to you. Well, thank you for coming on to the program again. And every time we have spoken, we've had such a massive response to oh. hearing from you. And I know that it has made a huge difference to people, especially your book, Lost Connections. So I know that this book in particular is going to do the same because it's certainly done that mm. for me. Thank you for, for pursuing these topics, which they're so vital to being human. The things that you're looking at really do affect everyone. They are universal subjects and they're not just about technology. For example, with this conversation, it is about who we are as humans, what we're driven by and whether we're able to fulfill our drives and desires and be able to be who we truly want to be. So yeah, thank you for pursuing these things, which are very meaningful to us. Oh, cheers, Amy. Thank you. Now, Johan, there's so much to get into, but <laughs> I do want <laughs> to start with the story that you pick up in the book, which I think is such a great way to get into this. And it was talking about your godson and what you were observing in him and also why it made you so frustrated because it seemed to be something that was actually deep down being reflected within yourself. So I wonder if you could share that story with us. Yeah, when, when my godson was nine, he developed this brief but freakishly intense obsession with Elvis Presley. I never understood how he even found out about Elvis, but it was particularly cute because he didn't know that Elvis had become a cheesy cliche. So I think he was probably the last person in the history of Western civilization to do a totally sincere impression of Elvis. And he used to get me to tell him the story of Elvis's life over and over again. And one night as I was tucking him in, I was telling it to him. And I mentioned Graceland where Elvis lived and he, and he looked at me and he said, will you take me to Graceland one day? And I said, yeah, sure. The way, you know, like with nine year olds next week, he'll want to go to Goofy's house or whatever. And he, and he looked at me really intensely and he said, no, do you swear 
one day you'll take me to Graceland. And I said, I absolutely promise. And I didn't think of that again for 10 years until so many things had gone wrong. He, he dropped out of school when he was 15. And by the time he was 19, this, this will sound like an exaggeration, it, it absolutely isn't. He spent literally almost all his waking hours alternating between his iPhone and his iPad. And his life was just this blur of WhatsApp, YouTube, porn, Snapchat. And it really was like he was kind of whirring at the speed of Snapchat when nothing still or serious could touch him. And one day we were sitting on my sofa just right next to where I'm sitting now. And I'd been trying to get talking to him all day and just nothing was getting any traction. And to be totally honest with you, Amy, I wasn't that much better. I was staring at my own devices. And I suddenly remembered this moment all those years before and I said to him, hey, let's go to Graceland. And he looked at me completely blankly. He's like, what are you talking about? He didn't even remember this Elvis phase he'd had. And I, I reminded him and I said, no, literally, let, let, let's go all over the South. Let's break this numbing routine. Let's get out of here. But you've got to agree one thing, which is that if we go, you'll leave your phone in the hotel during the day because there's no point going if you're just going to stare at your phone all day. And he thought about it really seriously. He said, yeah, I would like to do that. Let's do it. So I think it was literally two weeks later, we took off from London Heathrow to New Orleans, where we started. And two weeks after that, we arrived in, in Graceland. And when you get to the gates of Graceland now, there's no physical person to show you around. This is even before COVID. What happens is they hand you an iPad and you put in some earbuds and the iPad shows you around. It says, go left, go right. It tells you about the room you're in. And every room you go in, there's a picture of that room on the iPad. So what happened, I noticed as we're walking around, is everyone just walks around Graceland staring at their iPad. And I'm finding this sort of slightly irritating. I'm a bit like, oh, we did travel quite a long way and no one seems to be looking at the place we've come to. And we, we got to the jungle room, which was Elvis's favourite room in Graceland. And there was a Canadian couple next to us. And the man turned to his wife and said, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I laughed out loud. I thought he was kidding. And I turned to look to them and they're just swiping back and forth. And I leaned over and I said, but hey, sir, there's, um, there's an old fashioned form of swiping you could do. It's, it's called turning your head because look, we're actually in the jungle room. You don't have to look at a <laughs> digital representation of it. We're, we're actually there. And they sort of looked at me like I was completely insane and backed away. And I turned to my godson to laugh about it. And he was standing in the corner staring at Snapchat because from the minute we landed, he couldn't stop. He just literally couldn't stop. And I, I went up to him. I did that thing that's never a good idea with teenagers. I tried to grab the phone out of his hand and I said to him, I know you're afraid of missing out, but this is guaranteeing that you'll miss out. You're not showing up at your own life. You're not present at the events of your own existence. This is no way to live. And he stormed off. I wandered around Memphis on my own that day and I found him later that day in the Heartbreak Hotel where we were staying, just, it's just up the street. And he was sitting by the swimming pool looking at his phone and I went up to him and I apologised. And he didn't look up from Snapchat, but he said to me, I know something's really wrong and I don't know what it is. And that's when I thought, okay, I need to figure out what's happening here because we had gone away to escape this attention crisis, this, this inability to be present. But what we realised is, is there was nowhere to escape to because that problem was seemed to be everywhere. So I was like, okay, what, what, what can we do now? And that was really the beginning of the journey for Stolen Focus. 
Yeah. And it just does make you think that all of our experiences are being mediated through our phones in a way, like you go to a concert and everyone's filming the concert, mm. looking through their phone instead of actually watching the concert. It actually also reminds me going to an art gallery. I had a similar experience where they would mm. give you iPads and you would put earphones in and everyone's just walking around looking at artwork being guided mm. by their iPad. And it just, I don't know, it's very jarring, isn't it? To think that there was an old school way of doing it, which was just standing in front of a painting and taking it in and thinking. <laughs> and oh, as you. you say, <laughs> letting your mind wander. It's, well, it's so interesting to me because as I began to research this, I sort of realised, you know, I had been, had this feeling for quite a long time that things that require deep focus that are so important to me, like reading a book, having proper deep conversations, we're getting more and more like running up a down escalator. You know what I mean? I could still do them, but they were getting harder and harder. And I could see the, the evidence was pretty clear. This was happening to a lot of people. For every one child who was diagnosed with serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children who have that diagnosis. The typical office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. Um, one small study found that typical American college student only focuses on any one task for 65 seconds. So trying to figure out, okay, what, what's, got, what's happened to us? But most importantly, how do, how do we overcome this? So I ended up going on this really big journey all over the world from Melbourne to Moscow to Miami to Montreal, not, not just to cities that begin with the letter M. And I interviewed over 200 of the leading experts on focus and attention. And I used my training in the social sciences at Cambridge University to really dig deeply into the science of this. And what I learned is, there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or make your attention worse. Some of those factors are in some aspects of our technology, but they actually go really widely from the food we eat to the hours we're forced to work to the sleep we don't get. There's a big range of factors going on. But crucially, what I, what I realized looking at all this evidence is your attention didn't collapse. Your attention has been stolen from you by some really big and powerful forces. But once we understand those forces, we can begin to take them on and get our brains back. Absolutely. And it's kind of liberating to know that it's not all your fault, that this idea of personal responsibility, which Australians here have heard a lot about over COVID and everyone supposedly mm. now having to take personal responsibility for their actions instead of the government intervening. Mm. You know, there is this interesting tension you bring into the book about the fact that there's environmental or systemic factors and then there are the individual actions one can take, but that's not going to get you the whole way. And it, it seems like it is reflected in so many of our social problems is that governments are reluctant to intervene on those systemic issues, especially when there's profit involved, you know, in this kind of capitalist society that we live in. And then a lot of this is pushed back onto people and they're made to feel this guilt and shame for being you know, not good enough. And as you point out, you make these interesting parallels between this issue and also obesity. Yeah, you know, it's funny, I had an epiphany about this with um, a, a scientist based in Australia. There's a guy called Professor Roy Baumeister, who is the leading expert on willpower in the whole world. He's a brilliant scientist. He's done the absolute cutting edge research on willpower. He wrote a book called Willpower, right? So I went to interview him quite early on and I said, you know, I'm thinking of writing a book about why people can't focus and pay attention. Really interested in how your insights can help us with that. And he said to me something like the exact words are in the book. It's interesting you say that because I found I can't really pay attention anymore. I just, I play video games a lot on my phone. And I was sitting opposite him and I was like, wait, 
you're the leading expert on willpower in the whole world. You, didn't you write a book called Willpower? And you're sitting there telling me you play Candy Crush all the time. It was like the moment at the end of Invasion of the Body Snatchers where they realise everyone's been body snatched and replaced by an alien. It was like, if even you were saying this to me. So that that's the moment when I felt most pessimistic in all the research for the book. But then I realised we've been told to, like you mentioned with obesity, we've been told to think about our problems in terms of individual willpower. That's how I thought about it. When I was chastising myself for not being able to pay attention, I was like, why aren't you strong enough? What's wrong with you? But actually, so there's a concept that I think is really helpful for thinking how we get to the solutions. And it's a concept that came from the historian, American historian, Lauren Berlant, who sadly died just a few months back. And the concept he came up with is called cruel optimism. So cruel yeah. optimism is where you take something with really big social causes in the way we live, like obesity, like depression, like attention problems. And you say, great news. I got a solution for you. You can't pay attention. Just use this meditation app for five minutes a day. Do the following three small, tiny tweaks. You're going to get your attention back. And I'm in favor of meditation. I'm in favor of every individual tweak that helps anyone. And I go through lots of individual changes that people can make on a personal level that will profoundly help them. But the reason, and it, the reason it's cruel optimism is, of course, it sounds optimistic. You're saying, hey, Amy, I've got a solution for you. But the reason it's cruel is the solution that's proposed is so incommensurate to the scale of the causes that it sets you up to fail, right? It might help a little bit, and that's certainly worth doing. But ultimately, the problem will not dissolve just because you spent five minutes on a meditation app. But the problem is, because I've told you that's the solution, the solution, when it doesn't work, you think, there's something wrong with me. Because I did the thing that you're meant to do. I tried the solution. and Look, here I am. I still can't focus. Now, it's really important. The alternative to cruel optimism is not pessimism. The alternative to cruel optimism is authentic optimism. And authentic optimism is where you explain to people the genuine causes of the problem and you scale the solutions to be as big as the problem, right? And I went to places that had done that from New Zealand to France on various aspects of the 12 factors that are undermining our focus and attention that I write about in Stolen Focus. Absolutely, we can solve this. I went to places that have begun the solution. We have solved comparable problems in the past, but we've got to be honest about how big the causes are. And then we've got to genuinely deal with those causes. Yeah, yeah. I think that's so true is that, well, it's almost like a kind of mass gaslighting, isn't it? If you're, mm. you know, I think you made that great comparison for what was it, itching powder, when you're throwing itching powder on people and saying, just meditate your way out of it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's exactly what's happening at the moment. <laughs> It's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all day yeah. and then leaning forward and going, hey, buddy, why don't you learn to meditate? Then you wouldn't scratch so much. And you want to go, yeah, I will learn to meditate. That does have huge value, but mm -hmm. you need to stop pouring itching powder on me. And we can do that. We can stop them pouring itch. The forces that are undermining our attention, we can stop them. And I went to places that have begun to do that. Yeah. I do want to start just talking about the individual experience first, because I think it'll be very relatable mm. for everyone, because I just found it so relatable reading about your three-month holiday or trip to Provincetown, because it almost sounds like a dream, really, what you went on. But also it was quite hard to read when you were talking about your withdrawal from technology, but also from that constant reinforcement you get on social media of, oh, someone read my post and someone liked the thing or my followers went up or I got emails and they responded. You know, So people are acknowledging your presence and, and sometimes potentially stoking your ego as well. 
And then when you're kind of cut off from all of that instant reinforcement and instant response, you're kind of left with yourself. Um, So (laughs) I wondered if you could share with us in the time that we've got, what are some of the experiences that you had in Provincetown, completely disconnecting from your phone, from your laptop, having these experiences and not just the positive parts, which you do bring out in the subsequent chapters, but some of the more surprising things that you found difficult. Yeah, when I came back from Memphis, I was so horrified. I thought I've got to do something drastic here. And because at that time, the story I had in my head about why my attention had gotten worse was basically, A, you are personally lacking in willpower and B, someone invented the smartphone and that screwed me, right? Those are the two stories. I later realized those stories were ridiculously oversimplified. I thought, well, okay, the solution is obvious here. Use your willpower to escape the smartphone. So I was in the lucky position. You mentioned one of my films got made into a movie. So I had a lot of money and I thought, right, why am I rotting my brain when I could choose an alternative? So I went to Provincetown which is a place in Cape Cod for three months. And I left my phone and my laptop in Boston. So I had no access to the internet for three months. You know, Provincetown is an amazing place. It's it's a little kind of gay resort town in Cape Cod. It's the kind of place where more than one person makes a living by dressing as Ursula, the villain from The Little Mermaid and singing songs about cunnilingus, right? Great place. Sounds really quite joyful. It is joyful. Although the two people who... The two people who dress as Ursula hate each other and think the other one is an imposter, but that's a different story. So I went there and you're totally right. The first week I felt this haze of decompression and relief. And I remember very vividly one day walking down the beach in the West End of Provincetown. And Provincetown is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And seeing people just staring at their phones and not looking around them. And normally I'd be like, oh, you're wasting your life. You know, you're not being present. I wanted to run up to them, grab the phone off them and say, give that to me, mine, right? And I think, you know, I realised that for whatever it was, 15 years up to that point, throughout the day, every day, I had been experiencing the kind of thin, insistent signals we get from the web, retweets, likes, texts. And this is a very pretentious way of putting it, but Simone de Beauvoir, the great French philosopher, much better philosopher than her awful partner, Jean-Paul Sartre, um, she said... That the, when she became an atheist, it was like the world had gone silent. And that was how I felt, right? I felt like the world had yeah. gone silent. No ordinary social interaction floods you with like hearts, right? That would be a very weird social interaction with someone you just met. Um, and I realized I kind of created a vacuum that I had to then fill. And I, and I did that in all sorts of ways. But the thing that was most important to me, though, is, you know, I was nearly 40. I thought maybe I can't pay attention because I'm getting older. My attention after that initial lull went back to being as good as it had been when I was 17. I could sit and read books for like eight, nine hours a day and my mind wouldn't, my attention wouldn't break. Um, And I sort of realized there, you know, what I would say to anyone listening, which is, you know, think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of, whether it's starting a business, being a good parent, learning to play the guitar, whatever it is, that thing that you're proud of required a huge amount of sustained focus and attention. And when focus and attention break down, your ability to achieve your goals starts to break down. Your ability to solve your problems starts to break down. You feel incompetent because when your attention breaks down, you do become less competent. And when I started to get my focus back, what was amazing was the sort of clarity that I started to get and the sense of competence, like I could do things again, was so great. And I remember at the end of my three months in Provincetown, 
one day I went to Long Point, which is sort of at the end of Provincetown by the lighthouse. And I looked back over the whole of Provincetown, this place I've been for so long. And I thought, I'm never going to go back to the way that I was. Why would I go back to that? This is, this is so much better. I got the ferry back the next day, got my phone and my laptop back. And within a month, I was 80% back to where I'd been before I left. I never went totally back. And later it got better because I learned to integrate a lot of what the scientists had taught me. But I only really understood that why I went back so radically when I went to interview a guy called Dr. James Williams in Moscow. He's there because his wife works for the World Health Organization. And Dr. James Williams had been a senior strategist at Google for many years, and he was horrified by what Google was doing to people's attention. We can talk more about that. So he quit. And he became, I would argue, the leading philosopher of attention in the world. And he said to me, the mistake you've made, Johan, with this trip to Provincetown, he said, I'm sure it was great. But the mistake you made is it's like thinking the solution to air pollution is for you personally to wear a gas mask, right? I'm not against wearing gas masks. If I lived in Beijing, I'd wear a gas mask. But that's not the solution to air pollution. The solution to air pollution is to deal with the source of the air pollution, right? And he said, this is a systemic problem and it requires systemic solutions. And, and that was when I began to explore them alongside the individual solutions that can, of course, help. Mm. I think Dr. James Williams, he probably has some of the most profound comments mm. in the book because, you know, he is talking about the fact that what are these flow on effects from losing attention? And it's really actually losing your purpose and your direction in life in a way because you've lost clarity and the ability to even know what it is that you wanted to put your focus towards let alone having access to your focus and, and skills of attention. So it was very illuminating to me thinking about that and also reflecting on the types of people it would also really affect. Like you were interviewing a lot of neuroscientists who were focusing on attention. That makes a lot of sense. They're academics, but they're also, I guess, deep thinkers in their jobs. Like their whole job is to mm. think very deeply and need clarity to draw on big issues to problem solve them. And even with all those people you were talking about, they were having these issues with their own attention. And it did make me wonder about, you know, clearly this would affect everyone in, in their lives, but it might even really affect the identities of people who strongly associate their own self with deep thinking, or perhaps their job requires a lot of grappling with issues or problems and, and that affects them more. And it just made me think about how this issue might touch people differently depending on their, their own selves, their own identities and their own passions. I think that's a brilliant way of putting it. And if you think about if you think about one of the 12 factors that I write about in Stolen Focus that are harming our attention, that we're playing out for almost everyone listening to some degree. I went to MIT to interview Professor Earl Miller, who's one of the leading neuroscientists in the world. And he said to me, look, there's one thing you've got to understand about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or two things at a time. That's it. This is a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain has not changed significantly in 40,000 years. It's not going to change on any time scale any of us are going to see. But what's happened is we've fallen from mass delusion. The average teenager now believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. And so what happens is scientists get people into labs, teenagers and older people, and they get them to think they're doing more than one thing at a time. And what they discover is always the same. You can't do more than one thing at a time. What you do is you juggle very quickly between tasks. So like, okay, Amy just asked me a question. Wait, what's this message on WhatsApp? Wait, what does that say on the TV about Ukraine? Wait, what's this message on Facebook? Wait, what was Amy saying again? So you're juggling very quickly. And it turns out 
that juggling, that switching comes with a really big cost. The fancy name for it is the switch cost effect. When you try and do more than one thing at a time, you will do all the things you're trying to do much less competently. You'll make more mistakes. You'll remember less of what you do. You'll be much less creative. And that feels like a small thing when you hear about it. It's like a small effect. It's a really big effect. So I'll give you an example of a really small study backed by a bigger body of evidence. Hewlett-Packard, the printer company, got a scientist in to study their workers. And he split them into two groups, the scientist. And he said to the first group, get on with whatever your task is and you're not going to be interrupted. And the second group was told, get on with your task, whatever it is, but you've got to, at the same time, answer a heavy load of email and phone calls. So pretty much how most of us live. And at the end of it, the scientist, Dr. Glenn Wilson, tested the IQs of both groups. The group that had not been interrupted scored on average 10 IQ points higher than the group that had. To give you a sense of how big that effect is, if you and me got stoned together now, Amy, if we sat down and smoked a fat spliff together, our IQs would go down by five points in the short term, right? So this is twice the effect of getting stoned in the short term. So at least in the short term, we'd be better off, you'd be better off sitting at your desk, getting stoned and doing one thing at a time than sitting at your desk, not getting stoned and doing loads of things. Now, clearly, you'd be better off neither getting stoned nor being distracted. But this is why Professor Miller said to me, we live in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of all these distractions. So what you lose when you're constantly juggling is depth, right? You lose the ability to engage deeply with any of the things you're doing. And I think you mentioned in the book, you talk about deep flow after this um, in the next chapter and how it makes you feel so productive because you get into this like little rabbit hole, you know, and you mm. go into this one thing and you kind of lose a sense of time. And I know that for me, that happens sometimes, um, you know, when I'm doing historical research, I'll get into mm. this really deep place and you just get into, I don't know, some other world, like an, a totally other world and nothing could almost pull you out, you know, mm. and it, it's just this amazing feeling, like it almost makes you feel like a superhuman. Yeah, that's but so then, important because what, you, what you're describing yeah. is, is something that, um, again, it, so this is there's something called flow states and everyone listening mm. will have experienced a flow state even if they don't know the term. A flow state is when you're doing something and you really get into it and your sense of time falls away, your sense of ego falls away. The way one rock climber put it is in flow, you feel like you are the rock you're climbing. And flow states are really important for the debate about attention because flow states are both the deepest form of attention that human beings can provide. And once you get into them, they're the easiest form of attention to provide. When you're in a flow state, it's not like memorizing facts for an exam. It's not like, oh God, what year did this king die it, it it just flows so obviously i wanted to figure out okay and you know different people get into flow doing different things it might be making mm. bagels doing brain surgery for me it would be writing so i wanted to figure out okay if this is a gusher of attention that exists inside all of us where do we drill to get that gusher right so i went to interview the leading expert in the world on flow states a man named professor mahali cheek sent me hi you have no idea how long it took me to learn how to say that and um he was the man who coined the phrase flow states in the 60s, and he spent more than 50 years researching them. And I did the last interview he ever did because he sadly died not long afterwards. And Professor Cheek sent me hi, I like just saying it now. He discovered a huge amount about this, but I think for anyone listening, there are three things in his research that will help you if you want to maximize your chances of getting into a flow state. First of all, you have to narrow down what you're trying to do to one goal. I want to paint this canvas. I want to climb this rock. I want to make this cake. 
you've got to narrow down to one goal for a good while. If you're trying to do two, three, four, five, six things at a time, you'll never get into flow. Secondly, you've got to choose a goal that is meaningful to you, right? If your goal isn't meaningful to you, your attention will slip and slide off it. You won't get flow. And thirdly, and this bit feels a bit counterintuitive, it will really help if you choose a goal that is at the edge of your abilities, right? At the edge of your comfort zone. So let's say that you're a medium talent rock climber. You don't want to just climb over your garden wall. That's not going to get you into flow. It's too easy. Equally, you don't want to suddenly tomorrow climb Mount Kilimanjaro. It's too much. Um, you want to climb a rock face that is slightly higher and harder than the last one you climb flow begins at the edge of your comfort zone so if you do these three things narrow down to one goal make it a meaningful goal push to the edge of your comfort zone but not beyond it the edge of your abilities you maximize your chances of activating this deep form of attention within you but even as i say that amy you can see how the environment we live in is undermining that because just just step number one do one thing at a time right we're really struggling to do that <laughs> you know yeah. And like not have your phone interrupt you. Exactly. <laughs> and I think one of the signs that you're in that deep flow is maybe you've like left your phone behind and forgotten about it. It doesn't <laughs> happen that often though. I'm not going to brag prematurely, <laughs> but I do want to bring in the other part of your experience, which was around mind wandering and this idea of just being with yourself and being in nature and letting your mind go and just how actually crucial it is for your own mental health, obviously, but also for your ability to focus. Because I think you talked about it really well about how you grappled with that and you felt like you were being so unproductive originally going on these very long walks and literally just sitting with yourself and looking out into the stars or pondering life and letting whatever it was come into your mind and just how kind of critical it is to creativity as well. Yeah, you know, it's funny because when I went to Provincetown, I thought, oh, you went there to get back your deep focus, right? You want to read lots of books, you want to... And, and the first month I was there, obviously I couldn't have a phone, but I brought my iPod, which is so funny, that it seemed like such a futuristic invention when I first got it. By the time I went to Provincetown, people thought I had like a relic from Noah's Ark. <laughs> but I'd loaded a load of audiobooks onto it. So when I wasn't reading often, I was kind of listening to my iPod. I remember... I had my noise cancelling headphones and every time I would switch them on because they've got Bluetooth, they would say, searching for Johan's iPhone, searching for Johan's iPhone. And then it would just go, sadly, connection cannot be made. And I was like, oh, it felt really spooky at first. And then about a month in, I just thought, you know, I was treating myself like a kind of foie gras goose that's being force fed information all the time. And so I thought, you know, I'm just going to go for a walk. And I started going for these really long walks and along the beach in Provincetown and just having nothing you know, obviously I had no phone, I had nothing to stimulate me and my mind just wandered. And at first I felt kind of guilty. I was like, oh, this is not what you came here to do. But I noticed as the days and weeks went by that the periods when I was mind wandering were the most fertile of the whole day, right? I was having these amazing, what seemed to me to be amazing insights. I started putting things together, started processing things from the past. And it was only later I went and interviewed many of the leading experts on mind wandering. There's been a huge transformation in the science of mind wandering, partly thanks to an amazing man I interviewed called Professor Marcus Reichel. And what they've shown is when your mind is wandering, so without any stimulus, any obvious direct stimulus, in fact, that is a really crucial form of thinking. It's when your mind wanders that you make sense of your past, that you anticipate the future which prepares you, it's also when you start to, to make connections between disparate things in your life, which is where creativity comes from. And I realized in the environment we created, it's almost the worst of all worlds. 
we're just jammed up with switching all the time. So you think about, and there'll be people listening to your radio show on their phone in a supermarket. I guarantee you look at the line in the supermarket now, no one is just standing there letting their mind wander, right? They'll all be looking at their phones. We've squeezed out the spaces for mind wandering, which makes us more brittle. It makes us less coherent as people. We don't get the space to reflect. So yeah, absolutely restoring mind wandering is a crucial element of, of what we need to do. It's so true. And it's, as they say in the book, um, as you quote these experts, it's bringing associations between new things. So, you know, as you say, creativity and new ideas don't just come out of nowhere. It's like mm. it, you need your brain to be able to have that space to find new connections between pre-existing thoughts. And it did remind totally. me, yeah, of like, you know, when you're in the shower and you get all your yeah. best ideas in the shower, it's probably because you're just like letting water wash over you and <laughs> it's so true and we know this about scientific discovery there's a famous example in the history of maths for example there was a mathematician called Henri Poincaré who was trying to solve one of the most difficult problems in maths and he spent like a year at his desk every day and then finally decided to take a holiday and on the second day of the holiday it suddenly came to him right so we've all had yeah. that experience I mean obviously not with solving one of the most difficult problems in maths I can barely solve like five plus five but you can see the the principle which is absolutely true yeah, yeah. And the other thing I wanted to touch on, I know this sounds super obvious to everyone and they get all of these sleep hygiene facts all the time, like, you know, turn your lights off, don't have your phone near you, get this many hours of sleep. And we all go, oh, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I need to do that. But as you highlight, it sounds really simple, but there's also a lot more to it, a lot more that your brain is doing when you're asleep and also that it needs to do certain things over a set number of hours. And one of the interesting things, well, many interesting things, but one of them was about brain cleaning and the fact that your brain is quite literally cleaning itself of toxins when you're asleep. So if you're not even getting enough sleep and deep sleep that leads you to dream, you know, you're not having that time for your brain to reset and be able to replenish itself. So I just really yeah. appreciated that as well, because you were bringing in some really interesting points, you know, and this is another thing that we really struggle against is this idea of going to sleep and doing nothing and letting our brain do something that we're not really even aware is actually happening. That's such a good way of putting it. And the figures on this are really shocking. You know, we sleep 20% less than we did a century ago. Children sleep 85 minutes less than they did a century ago. And only 15% of us wake up feeling refreshed. And I went and interviewed many of the leading sleep experts in the world. And you know, I remember Dr. Charles Seisler at Harvard Medical School explained to me, if you stay awake for 19 hours, your attention deteriorates as much as if you had got legally drunk, right? Even if you just go nine or 10 days with just six hours, again, you get the same level of deterioration. And it's for exactly the reason you, you explain, which is the whole time you were, you're awake, your brain is building up what's called metabolic waste. Um, it's what Professor Roxanne Prashad called to me brain cell poop, right? And when you go to sleep, you know, we think of sleep as a passive process. Sleep is incredibly active. When you go to sleep, a watery fluid rinses through your brain and it carries this brain cell poop out of your brain down into your kidneys and your liver and eventually out of your body. If you don't sleep, your brain literally doesn't clean itself properly. It doesn't repair. You know that feeling when you feel clogged up and almost hung over when you haven't slept properly? That's, again, not a metaphor. Your brain is literally clogged up with metabolic waste. So it's absolutely essential that we get eight hours sleep a night. And 40% of us are getting less than seven hours a night. 
and Australia has quite bad statistics on this. So we we absolutely have to restore sleep, but this is connected to many of the bigger kind of social causes that I'm sure we'll talk about. But in a way, it's interesting because I think what I realised is of the 12 causes that are damaging our attention and focus that I write about in, in Style on Focus, you know, tech is only one of them, but it's interesting they interact. So the way I start to think about it is, if you think of the tech as like a virus, right? This technology is designed to hack and invade our attention, much of what we're using. Technology doesn't have to work that way. It can be designed a different way. But a lot of the tech is designed to hack and invade our attention. But if you think of that as a virus, that would have been powerful at any point in human history. But it arrived at a moment when our collective immune system was already down. Loads of other changes were happening that were already weakening our attention. Sleep is one of them. The food we eat at the moment is profoundly damaging our focus and attention. There's a whole range of in the 12 causes that I go through. And, you know, we all know that. You think about if there's a night where you haven't slept, that's much more likely to be the next day, a day when you scroll mindlessly through Facebook and TikTok. It's probably not going to be the day when you pick up Tolstoy, right? So it's not that the sleep and the tech and the many other, the 10 other factors that I write about are separate factors. They all Mm. interact with each other to create this negative outcome. I'm glad you brought up that interconnection because the one of the ones that shocked me the most but then not so much when i had more time to reflect on it was about in that chapter on the collapse of sustained reading where you were talking about this way that the collapse in the reading of books was a symptom of our atrophying attention as you say but in some ways it's also a cause of it and then there's this kind of really unhealthy cycle so you were talking about how when we're reading on a screen we kind of get into this flipping mode and and like skimming mode where we're just looking for key information and we're not really kind of engaging deeply with anything and then when we move to you know a book or a page that's actually a hard copy printed paper it's almost contaminating our reading experience of the book because we're then transferring those reading habits and behaviors onto the page and the book that we're reading. And normally we would experience the book in a a much different way. And I just found that so personally true for me. What were your kind of reflections on that? Because I know you were engaging in so much deep reading and not reading on a screen for so long, which is something we don't even really get to do anymore. And as you say, so many Americans, for example, don't even read a book in a year. You know, what are your personal reflections? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so because some people will hear what you're saying and think, oh, this is a foggy-ish thing. It's nostalgia. Actually, the scientific evidence on this is really clear. There's an enormous amount of research on this. People like Professor Anne Mangan at Stavanger University in Norway have done a huge amount of research. So what you do, the way they study it is, I mean, there's lots of ways of studying it, but one way is you get a group of people, you split them into two, you give them all the same information or story, and some of them get given it as a physical book and some of it or printout. And some of it get given it on a screen. And then you go back to them an hour later, a week later, a year later, and you just ask them questions about it. And what they find is you always find what's called screen inferiority. People remember much less and understand less of what they read on screens compared to what they read on the physical page. And there's a debate about why. It's not totally clear. One one reason seems to be that when you read on a page, you read linearly. You read in English from left to right. And then you read next line, next line, next line. When we read on a screen, we tend to read in a Z shape. You read the first bit and then you skim ahead and then you go back. But as you say, part of the problem is if you read too much on screens, when you then try to read on the page, you start reading that in a Z shape as well. And then reading becomes, reading a book, say, becomes less like 
you know, having a warm, immersive bath and more like dashing around a supermarket in order to get what you need and to get out again, um, mm. which of course makes reading less pleasurable, which creates a downward spiral. So it's about, so obviously I talk about lots of ways in Stolen Focus that we can reverse that cycle and places that had built solutions based on that. And you also talk about empathy as well and how people, you know, reading fiction, for example, are more empathetic and building that capacity for empathy for other human beings. Yeah, when you read a novel, and Professor Raymond Marr at the University of York in Toronto, where I interviewed him a lot, has done amazing research on this. When you read a novel, you're imagining what it's like to be another person. It turns out that that's like a kind of empathy gym. That, that empathy doesn't go away. You use it more the more novels you read. Let's jump into the tech world, which is very dystopic when you draw it out. And there are a couple of very deep chapters around this, but you talk to a range of people, particularly Tristan. Uh, is it Tristan Harris? Yeah, yeah, amazing person. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, I think some people might be wondering, it sounds like a bit of a conspiracy. Could this all be true? You know, what is the depth of design and manipulation that exists in technology? What did you discover essentially from Tristan who'd worked at Google, who'd worked on the design of the Gmail app and who has clearly since stepped away from that and tried to talk about a more humane technology, as he said, and, and to try and challenge it from the outside, but he had been actually involved in building it with his colleagues from the inside. Well, let's think about, we don't even have to go to dissidents like Tristan. Let's think about people who are still mm. at the heart of it. Sean Parker, one of the biggest initial investors in Facebook, said, we invented Facebook to maximally invade people's attention. We knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. That's what he said. But I just want to set up if it's all right, Amy, when we talk about this. So sometimes people can hear these truths about technology, the technology we're currently using, which is not all tech. And it can feel like, oh, geez, we're, so we're living in the matrix, right? We're, we're just, this is enormous machinery. I want just to establish in people's minds a historical precedent in the history of Australia that will equip us to deal with this. So when, when I was a kid, the standard form of petrol in Australia and Britain was leaded petrol. And a little bit before my time, it was very normal that people painted their homes with leaded paint. And it was discovered that exposure to lead really harms people's brains and in particular harms children's ability to focus and pay attention. So a group of ordinary mothers in Australia banded together and said, why are we allowing this? Why are we allowing for-profit companies to, to wreck our children's brains? And it's important to notice what they didn't say. They didn't say, so we're anti-petrol. So we're anti-paint. They didn't say, let's ban all paint and all petrol. They said, let's deal with the specific component in the paint and in the petrol that is damaging our kids' brains. So they banded together. They formed a democratic movement to ban lead. They fought and they fought. It took years and they succeeded. Everyone will know we don't have leaded paint anymore. We don't have leaded petrol anymore. As a result, the CDC, the Centre for Disease Control, has calculated that the average child is three to five IQ points higher than they would have been had we not banned lead, right? Now, to me, that is a crucial model. You identify a factor in the environment that's harming people's attention. You understand the science. You band together in a democratic movement. You get it out of the environment. And a lot of what I argue in the book is that just like we needed and obviously still desperately need a feminist movement for women to reclaim their bodies and their lives, we need an attention movement to reclaim our minds. And it requires a shift in focus. We need to stop only asking for small tweaks. I talk about dozens of things that people can do as isolated individuals to improve their and their children's attention. Obviously, the last third of the book is about children's attention. 
I'm passionately in favour of those individual changes, but also we need to stop only asking for individual tweaks. We are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds and we can take them back from the forces that are stealing them. So if you think about that lead analogy, obviously I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, as you say, Amy, interviewing dissidents there, people who'd been at the heart of the machine and had left because they were horrified. And they kept saying something to me that took me quite a long time to understand. So for example, I interviewed Asa Raskin, who invented a key part of how the internet works. His dad, Jeff Raskin, invented the Apple Macintosh for Steve Jobs. And Asa said to me, look, if you want to deal with the tech element of this, there's an equivalent to the lead in the lead paint. And that's the current business model for social media. So at the moment, anyone listening, don't do it now. But if you open Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, whatever it is, those apps start to make money the moment you open them. And every extra minute you scroll, they make more money. And every moment you put your phone down, that revenue stream disappears. So all of that algorithms, all of that engineering power, all of this genius in Silicon Valley is geared towards one thing, figuring out how do we get Amy to pick up her phone and how do we get her to keep scrolling as long as we possibly can. That's their goal. It's not conspiracy theory any more than it's a conspiracy theory to say KFC want you to buy fried chicken, right? Of course they do. That's how they make money. But what was crucial and what Acer and many other people in Silicon Valley explained to me is we can have all the social media and have it not designed to hack and invade our attention if we change the business incentives. So they kept saying to me, the solution here is ban the current business model. Say that a business model premised upon hacking and invading people's attention, on finding out the weaknesses in people's attention in order to invade it and sell it to advertisers, that is just an inhuman model. It's like lead in lead paint and we will not allow it. But when they kept saying that to me, I kept going, I I didn't understand it. I kept saying, okay, let's imagine we do that. And the next day I opened Facebook, would it just say, sorry, everyone, we've gone fishing? They said, of course not. What would happen is they'd have to move to a different business model. And there's two different models that everyone, almost everyone listening will have an experience of. So one is subscription. We all know how that works. Netflix, HBO, whatever, you pay a certain amount, you get access. Or think about one that everyone listening has experienced of. Think about the sewers. Before we had sewers, we had feces in the street. We've got cholera. So we all pay to build the sewers together and we all own the sewers together. You own the sewers in Melbourne. I own the sewers in London. We own the sewers together with other citizens in the places where we live. Now, it may be that like we want to own the sewage pipes together. We want to own the information pipes together because we're getting the equivalent of cholera for our attention. But whatever the alternative model we adopt, whether it's subscription or some form of public ownership independent of government, the key thing to understand is all the incentives then change. At the moment, the incentives are, how do we get Amy to scroll as long as possible, even if she doesn't like it, right? Because you're not the customer. You're the product they sell to the real customer who's the advertiser. But under subscription or public ownership, suddenly you become the person they're accountable to. Suddenly they have to go, oh, what does Amy want? Turns out Amy wants to be able to pay attention. Let's design our app not to hack her attention, but to heal her attention. Oh, Amy, it turns out, wants to meet up with her friends offline because Human beings feel much better when they look into each other's faces than when they look at a screen, as we all learned in the last two years when we were deprived of it. Okay, let's design it to facilitate meeting people offline rather than preventing them meeting offline so they scroll, doom scroll at each other's photos enviously. The technology to do that exists right now. Tristan and my friends in Silicon Valley could do it tomorrow, right? That's easy. Mm. It's just that the incentives aren't there. And just like the lead industry was never going to go, you know what, guys? I think we've made enough money. Let's stop poisoning kids' brains. That's not how it works under capitalism. It took a movement to stop them and regulate them in the same way 
these social media companies aren't going to stop on their own. Of course they aren't. But we can make them stop, right? We can have a movement. And, you know, this is the one and only time I will ever in my whole life say anything positive about Scott Morrison is think about what happened in Australia last year where the Australian government said to Facebook, look, people go to your website to read the news. You get all the advertising that goes alongside the news, but you're bankrupting the organisations that gather the news, like the Sydney Morning Herald, the Melbourne Age, whatever it is. So you've got to give some of your money, you've got to give some of your advertising revenue to the media, right? And Facebook shit the bed. They screamed and shouted. They cut Australia off for a while from a lot of the key functions people will remember. And then what happened? Quietly, they gave in. Because we are so much more powerful than them, right? We can stop them. And, you know, Dr. James Williams, the guy I mentioned before, who rightly you pointed out is such a profound person, he said to me, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone thought to put a handle on it. The entire internet has existed for less than 10,000 days, right? We can get this stuff right, you know. And for all of the 12 factors that I write about in Stolen Focus that are harming our attention, a lot of these things are very recent changes, right? They weren't visited on us by God. They happened because of human decisions. And we can collectively make different human decisions to not allow our attention to be pillaged and raided for the profit of a small minority, and even that small minority are miserable. It's not even good for them. So like, it, we, we can absolutely sort this out. But to sort it out, we've got to understand what the 12 causes are. We've got to defend ourselves and our children as much as possible. And then we've got to go on the offense against these forces. We've got to form a movement and we've got to fight for our focus. Because we don't have to tolerate this being done to us and our children. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you um, got really hated there, Johan. <laughs> Um, it's true and it's also because you say we need to bring to bear our attention on collective problems and so it's not just affecting us as individuals but us as a whole society which I totally found so true 100% I end the book by thinking a lot about the black summer that you guys went through Um, and I thought a lot about you know it's not just our individual attention that's being destroyed it's our collective attention it's not a coincidence that we're having the biggest crisis in democracy all over the world at the same time as we're having since the 1930s, the biggest crisis in democracy, at the same time as our attention has collapsed, right? If you can't pay attention individually, you can't pay attention collectively, you can't build solutions to big problems. And I think about, you know, Australia, the place burned down and you still don't have a climate policy. And of course, there's many reasons why. I don't want to be naive about this. There's lots of things going on, the power of the fossil fuel industry being an obvious one. But part of it is that we can't pay attention. And that's a a huge problem. And if we are losing our superpower as a species, our attention, at the moment of our greatest crisis, the climate crisis, that's going to be really dangerous. And, you know, Dr. Williams said to me, imagine you're driving a car and someone throws a huge bucket of mud over your windshield. It doesn't matter what you've got to do when you get to your destination. The first thing you've got to do is get the mud off the windshield. You're not going to be able to do anything if you don't do that. And I think it's a really good metaphor for the attention crisis because... If we don't get attention right, we can't get anything right, right? So it's not that attention is the biggest crisis in the world. Clearly, the climate crisis is bigger. But it's the one that we have to solve first, because otherwise we won't be competent to solve any of the other stuff. Mm, Yeah. And just to finish out on Dr. Williams, because I just loved the end and the conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. You even talk about him talking about these layers of attention, the first being your spotlight where you have focus on immediate actions, the second being your starlight, 
where you look at applying yourself to longer term goals, like you want to write a book. The third one being your daylight, which is a, a kind of broader form of focus that shines this kind of massive light on and around you so that if you get distracted from your purpose, it brings it back to, to light. Yeah. And then you quote him as saying that he believes that losing your daylight is the deepest form of distraction. And you may even begin decohering, which is when you stop making sense to yourself because you don't have the mental space to create a story about who you are. And you become obsessed with these petty goals and dependent on simplistic signals, like as we've discussed here, you know, mm. retweets and, and likes and and that kind of thing. So I wanted to, I guess, finish on that. I know it's not as uplifting, but it also did bring it home to me just how much this is a deep issue for us as human beings, as I mentioned at the start of the interview, and that it's kind of about our own sense of ourselves and our own direction and our ability to look at that guiding star of who we are and why we're here and not get distracted and lose all of that precious time we have here on earth. It's so true because we think about distraction at this kind of irritating low level you know I went to the fridge to get a diet coke and someone texted me and I forgot why I went into the kitchen and I came back right and of course that that is really happening and it's galling and it is like grit in your day but when that happens over protracted periods of time and your attention is being distorted interrupted and the society's attention is being distorted interrupted that leads to much bigger problems which is why it's so important that we start adopting the solutions that I saw being put into practice everywhere from France to New Zealand that are grappling with these 12 deeper causes. But I'm actually very optimistic. You know, we can deal with this. We have to deal with this. I believe we can and will, but we'll only be able to deal with it if we fight for it, right? Um, Elizabeth Warren, the American politician, said, in politics, you don't get what you don't fight for. Of course, I mean, and she means peacefully fight, not it would be absolutely insane for anyone to fight this violently. We have to decide we value focus. And this is really important right now because we're in a race. To one side, you've got all these 12 factors that are invading our attention, many of which are poised to become more powerful. Paul Graham, one of the biggest investors in Silicon Valley, said the world will be more addictive in the next 40 years than it was in the last 40 on the current trajectory. Think about how much more addictive TikTok is than Facebook. Okay, now imagine the next crack-like iteration of TikTok in the metaverse. That's one side of the race. On the other side of the race, we've got to have a movement of all of us saying, no, no, we don't want this. No, we. this is not a good life. We want to be able to think deeply. We want our children to be able to play outside. We want to be able to look into each other's faces. No, we don't want your metaverse. We don't want to live in your shitty, degraded world. We choose focus. We choose depth. We choose attention. We choose to be able to think. We can choose that if we want to, but it has to be a choice and we have to fight for it. If we don't fight for it, they'll carry on invading and pillaging us and they're really good at it and they're going to get better and better if we don't stop them. So we've got to stop them and we can. Yeah. We absolutely can. And as you point out, and as others do, they don't even want to live in the world that they've built. <laughs> it's an amazing moment that James Williams had where he spoke at a tech conference that was full of people who've designed the world in which we live. You know, apps that literally people listening have used today. And he said to them, if there's anyone here who wants to live in the world that we're creating, please put up your hand. And not one person put up their hand. This isn't a good world. Yeah. We can choose a better one. And as you mentioned, the last third of the book is about children. So I hope people can pick it up and get mm. into that 
in some depth because you do take time to go through it in a lot of care and complexity, which we wouldn't be able to give the right amount of focus and attention. To <laughs> oh, the irony. <laughs> yeah, so I do want to draw people's attention to that and that they should, if they have kids or are thinking yeah. of having kids, you know, that you can learn a lot from or even if you like book. children, even if you like children. Yeah, or if, you <laughs> have, if you're well. a godparent like Johan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Gore Vidal said, always a godparent, never a god. Which is a line I always think of. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Well, <laughs> you are a god to many in the way that you've brought together all of this research, Johan, and travelled the world. So thank you for chatting with me. And oh. uh, I hope people can pick up the book. It's called Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention, and it's out through Bloomsbury. Thanks so much oh, again. Amy, it's always a joy to talk to you. I meant to say on my publishers tase me that anyone wants to know where to get the audiobook, the ebook, or the physical book can go to stolenfocusbook.com you can um you can pretty much buy them anywhere and also um i meant to say you can get it from all good bookshops but i always want to say we well, can get it from crappy bookshops as well we don't like we don't have like a quality <laughs> test where you can go like oh you can't stock stolen focus here you're not good enough yeah what a joy thanks so much amy next time we do this we will actually be face to face oh my gosh and please we'll see each other. yes i can't wait thank Hooray, you so amazing. much yeah thank you sending you all Mwah. the best I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.